When you think about applying for a practice loan, do you think about speed and simplicity? Likely not. For many veterinarians, applying for business loans can be a long and fatiguing process. Luckily, the sponsor of the podcast, Provide Inc., has changed all that. Provide is a specialty lender to the veterinary industry. They're the only, and I mean only, fully online and digital lender in the veterinary space, which makes life easy. You know I go on and on, and I'm so pro-practice ownership. I cannot be happier to have Provide be a sponsor. Whether you're in Maine or California, Provide can help. They aren't going to require you to open your savings account or jump through some hoops to get some sort of relationship discount on your loan. They're simply just going to say, here's our rate, this is the process, and we're going to do a good job. Provide uses innovative software and technology coupled with excellent service and an industry experience to deliver something that's just more efficient. Even on very complicated transactions, Provide can make a decision on whether they're going to lend in a mere five to seven business days. As we all know, time is money and having those answers quickly matters. Provide offers financing for practice acquisitions, buy-ins or buy-outs, commercial real estate, refinancing, practice remodels, all that stuff. Anything that you have around financing for your veterinary clinic and your business, they can help you with. So when you think about it, you can pre-qualify in minutes with no effect on your credit score. That's a benefit as well. For more information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see a hyperlink under the provide bio. That'll get you directly to where you can pre-qualify. You can do it on your couch. You can do it in 10 minutes or less. And if you do want to reach out directly to them, please let them know that I sent you. They'll take great care of you and they will be alongside you for one of the biggest purchases of your life and do a great job at it. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jules Benson, who is the Chief Veterinary Officer at Nationwide Pet. Dr. Benson has had a lot of experience both in clinical medicine and in industry, has a strong passion for data and technologies that shapes the veterinary medicine landscape today and into the future. And we're going to dive into a lot of different topics, but thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Benson. No, cool to be here. Always excited to talk. And as we have talked a little bit before, I can run on at the mouth for hours and hours. So I'll try and be as disciplined as possible today. Well, and the thing is, is this is a longer format podcast, so it's perfect for that. So like you're in the right spot. This is great. That's good. I wanted to start off in a spot where when we had connected the first time, you mentioned that your career was kind of a happy accident because we were going back and forth on luck versus skill and all these different things where you kind of corrected me in a way on something I said. And I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. I appreciate that. But can you tell a little bit about this happy accident and how you got to where you're at today? It's all been a happy accident. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Even veterinary medicine, when I left in the UK, it's a little bit different, right? So we leave high school 18. And at that time, you take your A-levels. And based on those results, you have asked for positions at certain schools to do certain subjects. And veterinary medicine, I mean, always had an interest in kind of the synthesis of like both science and humanities, which I think, again, we talk about the art of veterinary medicine. I think vet med is one of those things, but I didn't really have it on my radar and I didn't have anyone in my family. I was the first one in my family really to go to university and didn't have anyone in the medical profession really in close family. And so I had a position to do zoology and then I did a year abroad. I worked in Northern Africa for a year and worked at a wildlife project there. And one of the other people there she was a medical student, but her sister was a vet student at Liverpool, and she got me an interview with the Dean of Admissions, and then they told me to go to do this course for a year about domestic animals in the UK. So it's all kind of fallen into happy accidents, and the same thing with my career. It's like kind of going into industry and then getting these great positions. It's all felt very accidental, but I think the point I was making when we talked was I was talking to a, re- a colleague and a friend recently, and she was kind of saying the same thing, that, oh, I'm in this position where 
people are coming to me and asking me things. And I'm just lucky that I've had these contacts in industry. And I said to her, it's not luck. You've been intentional in seeking these things out and making these connections and creating these opportunities for yourself. And it's kind of dawned on me that I think just my innate curiosity and the positions I find myself in, unless you're building on those and really taking every opportunity you get. I think that's what I see other people who have taken the same path as me, that they've taken this opportunity. And, and, and it's only by recognizing other people, you think, oh, maybe I was more intentional than I thought about it. But yeah, I think we're often, hopefully humility is a good thing. So we're not saying, yeah, I'm great at stuff. That's why I got all these cool jobs and stuff. But I think we should recognize that the path that many of us take, where it's not necessarily deliberate, we have set ourselves up for success by taking alternative paths or being open to different options or just by having a social aspect. There's so much of that in this industry where talking to the right people, just getting to know the right people. And just one of the things I've enjoyed most about this job is being able to put people together. Already, I think there's two or three people who I've kind of put together where they found really great ways of working together. And again, it's nothing, quote unquote, in it for me, but it's so gratifying to see really cool people that you like working together. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about this industry as well. I think there's a saying and I've always liked it, but it's like, you seem to get a lot luckier the harder I work. And it's similar to that idea is like, if you put yourself in positions, luck will sometimes find you because you've prepared yourself and gotten connected and being curious, I think is massively underrated in any career, just asking questions and trying to learn more. So that's a great place to start. Can you talk a little bit about what your role is today? Because I think that's a good backdrop for some of the other stuff we'll chat through and kind of your insights and what you see from a a day-to-day or weekly or monthly basis? Yeah. I think the oldie worldy version of that is chance famous, the prepared mind, right? That's the... It uh, sounds a lot uh, better that way. <laughs> <laughs> this job has been super exciting. And I came into it replacing someone who is iconic in the industry. So Dr. Carol McConnell, who was in this position for 16 years or so, had done so much already. She'd been a founding sponsor and a really important part of the Veterinary Business Management Association which is an awesome organization, which basically helps teach vet students things they don't learn in class, right? So it's about what are they going to see in practice? What are the options outside of practice? How are they going to manage money? What does it mean to own a practice? Like all these really important questions that I think they want to get prepared for. How do they manage their debt? I mean, goodness, we know more and more schools are doing that on their own, but VBMA certainly had a big part to play in helping prepare students for that. She was a founding sponsor of the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, And apart from that, she was just, again, one of those people who was great at connecting people and just knew everyone in the industry. So coming in, it was just a massively difficult job because I had to step into Carol's shoes and try and do some of the work that she'd done at as lower level competency as I could possibly manage. But the job as it stands at the moment, historically, has really been about interfacing with the veterinary industry and making sure that within Nationwide, that the needs of animal health and of veterinarians and of our members are understood from a veterinary and medicalized perspective. And then just the, obviously we have sponsorships and partnerships and trying to manage those from a bigger perspective. My role, again, with my history in data and kind of uh, information technology to a degree, I'm hopefully bringing to it a little bit more of an ability to look at our data historically and use that to not just look. I mean, my real goal is the ways that we can use those data to provide evidence-based medicine approaches to some of the things that we do within animal health and to provide thought leadership and guidance. Again, not a, you know, there's a pejorative about insurance companies that they're going to tell us what to do. I think what we want to do is help to guide people towards beneficial outcomes and not tell people what they have to do, but really using data to benefit the industry as a whole. And I think one of the things that we have an opportunity to do more generally is to collaborate. I know that there's a lot of people sitting on a lot of data 
And there's a lot of people out there who are looking for ways to use that and to benefit ultimately pets and pet parents, which I think is certainly the direction I'm interested in. So apart from that, I spend a lot of time on special projects and spend a lot of time with our business development folks. But every day is different and every day is exciting. And it's been interesting getting to know a company from the inside during COVID. My wife and I moved from Pennsylvania to California mid-May last year. So we're getting to know some colleagues and some colleagues have started since then. And I only know them through telepresence, through Zoom or Teams or something. So it's great. It's such a huge opportunity and a company like Nationwide, one of the things I have appreciated, which it's, you know, a company has an external presence and an external brand, um, but you don't appreciate until you're inside the culture of an organization. And Kurt Walker, who is still our relatively new CEO, the disruption and the tragedy that we've seen, especially from a social justice point of view over the past year, I've been personally just so grateful and encouraged by the position that Nationwide has on a lot of that. I think somebody asked, something that really pivoted me was, I think on a big call of these 27,000 plus employees, someone asked Kurt Walker, hey, can I wear my Nationwide shirt at a rally? And he's like, yep, we trust you. Whatever you need to do, we trust that you'll represent Nationwide and that you'll do the brand well, um, but whatever you need to do. So to me, that was just like, a, okay, that's amazing. So great companies to work for. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's one of those things where you want to hire people, let them do their thing. And again, of all 27,000, like there's no way he's going to know each individual when you get that big. It's so difficult as you have larger corporations to have culture the same way that you would in a 10 person clinic, let's say. But yeah, that's really cool. Nationwide has historically been very much a advocate of practice ownership, which is great. And again, obviously ties into a lot of the themes I talk about on this podcast. Can you share some of the work that you all are doing for current owners, but also those that are coming out of school as well? Because I know you kind of hit on that with some of the training and education that you guys put on. Yeah. I mean, practice ownership is one of those areas where I'm always talking to VBMA students. And I think there's an atmosphere that exists at the moment where those of us who are in industry just see consolidation and we see, oh my goodness, consolidation. That's the future of practice ownership because it just feels so massive. And we have this acquisition bubble, right, of people paying massive amounts of practices that we've never seen before. We keep waiting for that bubble to burst, but it doesn't seem to be. There's still practices that are selling for 5, 10, 15 EBITDA, which is, it used to be what, two, three, four. So it's encouraging to, and I will say the most gratifying, optimistic work I have is working with the students. It's so great to talk to these, to, these amazing young people. And I'm at that point in my life where I say young people, because <laughs> some of them are probably the same age as I am at this point, but who knows? To talk to these young people, to the, these budding veterinarians, and to see the optimism, but also the knowledge they have. They're not going into this blindfolded, again, thanks to organizations like the BBMA and the VIN Foundation and others. But when they talk about practice ownership and independent practice ownership, or even medical directorship, again, I think they're realistic about those things. And I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to teach them about basic business principles, revenue, third-party payment schemes work, and how can they be beneficial? What are the hazards involved? And we've even actually set this year a new presentation around marketing. Like how do you as a vet student find your brand? What are the ways that you're going to reach out and demonstrate what's unique about you? There's a really fun story that I share in the presentation, which is about Jägermeister. There's a marketer called Sally Hogshead, and her tagline is, different is better than better. And she tells this story about Jägermeister of Jägermeister has marketed itself on the basis of being a toxic experience. Nobody's drinking Jägermeister at three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Like that's Chardonnay. Like Jägermeister is, it's two in the morning and you're about to make terrible decisions. And like that's even 
the taste. Like I think she polled the audience, and like 85% of people didn't like the taste. But what's worked for Jägermeister is it's marketed itself on that basis. You don't have to be the best at anything, but you have to be different. And so communicating to veterinary students, you don't have to be the best at one thing, but a combination of things that you do in your background can make you stand out from the crowd. And I think that's one of the things that we're trying to, as we talk about what is the future of veterinary medicine and practice ownership, what are the unique things that veterinary medicine does? And I know that we've all been looking at this train coming down the track of like, what are the things that practice are going to be uniquely suited to do? And how is disruption occurring already in the marketplace? And so certainly one of the things that we're trying to say is you have to sell your value proposition. You have to show people what you're good at and why the services you're providing. You know, And again, telehealth can be part of this, for example, but you have to build it in as to how are you interacting with all these ways that people want to seek veterinary medicine or want to get their medications or want to have specialty consultation or whatever it is. So certainly set the vet students think up for things like that is a huge part of what we do. I love the part about branding and taking your unique experiences of where you're at because it's really hard to compete with you. Like if someone takes what they have, like there's something special to that. And even though you might think, oh, my story doesn't mean it. No, it will resonate with certain people. And you want to lean into that and not try to say, oh, I'm going to go and be the same as someone else. Like you're losing some of the ability to make an impact. So I think that's a really awesome strategy that is well, simple. It's an Oscar Wilde quote, which is, I think, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I like that. Again, I say something, you have such a good, strong quote to come back with. It. <laughs> I need you around in my life more often. I'm trying to explain something and getting stuck with my words. And you're just like, oh, here's what you want. It's perfect. I got, like a, I got a small like, <laughs> sack of them and that's it. I mean, I think this is the same on every yeah. interview. I'm just... You shared, and this is out there, but you all did a fantastic study on kind of retention and revenue and looking at care for insured and then uninsured cats and dogs, can you share some of the results? And I think more interesting is you also shared like, hey, these are the questions I would have looking at the study. But again, I know in a podcast format, it's going to be kind of hard <laughs> to visually show anything, but we can talk to it because I think it is really powerful. Absolutely. And so we were lucky enough to work with the folks at Vet Success, And I've known that group for a while now, but hadn't had the opportunity to work with them directly. I've been looking for excuses to do so. It turned out that some great people in our product and marketing departments were having good conversations with them. And so we said, hey, could we do this? Because we've done studies in the past where we're looking at what is the value of insurance to veterinary clinics and how can we demonstrate that? And so we've done studies in the past, but I think now with this new dawning of some companies said, like Vet Success who are really into the data, so can we do something? And they said, yeah, here's the thing we can do. And so we ended up with a study this last year, which is across 2,000 primary care centers, almost 10 million patients, and I think about 22 million visits. So we'll publish the results soon. There's, a, I think, press release coming out in the next week or so. But ultimately, the visitation, revenue per client or per pet, should I say, and the loyalty of clients, all those things alone had pretty massive increases. So for example... The visitation for dogs is increased by 73%. The spend on dogs per year is increased by 92%. And then from a loyalty point of view, there's greater retention for dogs increases by 76% over three years. Now, so I was talking about this as well. I was listening to a podcast about, I'm at the point in my life where I'm like, how do I manage money and things like that? And I was listening to a podcast about wealth and the podcast was like, how to build wealth. And I was like, that sounds like something I should know. <laughs> so the answer was disappointingly slowly. 
And I think there's a quote out there, which is attributed to Einstein, but I think is apocryphal, which is when asked, what is the most magical thing in the world? And he said, compound interest. So I think when you put visitation, revenue and loyalty together, what really blew us away was the lifetime value per patient. And when you look at basically a pet over an eight year, an extrapolated eight year period, there was an increase in revenue for nationwide insured versus non-nationwide insured pets of over 200%. So to us, that just seemed like a no-brainer now. So basically the question to ask is, are pet parents' behaviors changing with insurance or are these insured clients already the clients who would act this way? The short answer is we don't have those answers yet. We know that insurance does make people act. I mean, the patterns that we see in claiming are certainly different to those that exist in the majority of practices. We believe that insurance has a massive difference in that. But as yet, we don't have the exact answer as to how specifically does a journey of a client change between uninsured to insured. So those are things that we're exploring as we go down the road. So that's the great thing about these studies is that they always open up avenues of like, well, what about this? Or what about that? And so it's been really cool to work with that team on there. And there's some other data we'll share about where insured clients over-index, which are things like diagnostics, dental, for example, and then areas where they're either on par or, or they're still, I say under-indexing, but they're still over-indexing compared to uninsured clients. But within the insured population, they're spending less relatively. It's all, it's all the ratios and stuff that blow my head up. Yeah, this podcast was released shortly after it was aired, so that'll be coming out soon. So you guys should definitely look out for the nationwide study and check it out because I do think that there's a lot of power to that. I love the idea of bringing in the compound interest and you know, it even makes me harken back to the vet partners, no low practice and every dollar lost in revenue, what that is on the other side as far as the value of that business. And so it's all kind of running in the same tracks as far as that revenue you're never going to get back. And it's not saying you're just trying to squeeze as much revenue as you can out of people. It's just trying to get to the point where you have a higher standard of care. And I say that word very specifically because <laughs> when we chatted, you described standard of care as a slippery monster. And I wanted to kind of unpack that a little bit and hear your thoughts. So I, I think it's a little bit of a slippery monster in many ways. So I think there's a few things that the insurance industry in general, I think people within the insurance industry, when we look at the costs of basically what we pay for veterinary care year over year, I think a lot of people see that and they say, oh, look how much the cost of vet care is increasing. And that's not an accurate statement, but it's not the cost of individual services necessarily that are increasing. As we all know, right, the cost of examinations, for example, generally increases at below inflation. It's the increased uptake of veterinary services, which is reflected by the availability of new and improved services and diagnostics, and the increased availability of just those services geographically, I think. So the example I always give to people within my industry is when Serenia and the IDEX canine pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity, the CPLI test came out, a vomiting dog used to be x-rays and mesoclopramide. And it changed overnight to the standard of care, quote unquote, became, well, if I have Serenia, I should use that because there's less upper GI motility and I should do a CPLI because if it's pancreatitis, I want to take a different route. And so that maybe doubled the cost of one of those visits overnight. And it's not because of anything that we did within the office. It's just because of these new availability. And again, the standard of care, we want to offer the highest standard we can. So it's a slippery monster in that I'm not targeting any specific company, but I think when we look at things that we don't have answers for, I think you can look at examples in the past, whether it's canine influenza, whether it's 
IDEX, uh, the Lime QC6 testing, like there are situations where people are offering solutions and then marketing those solutions. And again, having worked in a marketing agency, our job is to say, okay, what is the population and how can we make people believe this is a good solution for their particular problem? And so one of those things is we say, when you see this certain situation, you should do this. If it's your dog going to be kenneled, though, you probably want an influenza vaccine because many of the kennels. So is your dog has Lyme? Well, we're going to give it a month of doxycycline, but we're also going to want to do this six months down the road because we think it has these. And again, not poorly intentioned, just a change in the standard of care and the expectation of what we'll charge. And I think that happens to us culturally within the clinic as well. I think I certainly saw when I was in practice that I think when people come in and we were in a suburban area of Philadelphia, like a nice area. And we had a diversity of clients in terms of the socioeconomic ability. And I think when people would come in and the reception staff would quite rightly say, these are the things we do for new puppies. And it's this and it's that and it's this test and it's these vaccines. And we recommend the new brand of flea and tick medication. And altogether, that's going to be $600 a year. I think A, people are scared to say, I don't want to do that because they'll be branded in their own eyes, probably more than anything else, a bad pet parent. And I think we as an industry sometimes have an issue with serving people with dignity when they don't have the ability to pay for things. And there's some data out there. Michael Blackwell's team at the University of Tennessee did the Align Care study uh, a few years ago. And there's some really eye-opening data in there about how we as an industry see people who can't, again, quote-unquote, afford pet care or choose not to get pet care for their pets and whether having a pet is a right or a privilege. And again, I think we're all coming from the right place in that we're concerned about the welfare of the pet. But as we look at more and more work that comes out of places like the Hugh and Animal Bond Research Institute, Habri and Nationwide, I should mention, is one of only two Habri certified companies where all of our employees have to go through Human Animal Bond. Not have to go through, choose to go through, but they also have to go through uh, Human Animal Bond training, which looks at the science behind the mutual benefit that humans and animals get from each other. So I think when you look at that work and coming from a background in the UK, working class background, where you certainly had enough growing up and having pets... The option to have a pet or not have a pet as dictated by socioeconomics is a tough option because there's so many benefits, especially to children, both as we're seeing mentally and from a health point of view, that there's more and more work suggesting that having a pet is a massive benefit. And is it another way of separating the houses that have nots? So there's a massively circular argument around if they can't afford it, they shouldn't have a pet and people shouldn't be stopped from having a pet just because they don't have the means to look after it. And is there a cause for socialized medicine? And of course, that gets into a whole cycle of socialized medicine, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what I'm interested in is how do we provide healthcare to people at a level that is manageable? So I think when I see models around, for example, incremental veterinary care, I think five years ago when I saw X, you know, big box retail stores opening vet clinics in their lobbies or whatever. I was like, oh my goodness, they're all coming to get us. They're all going to take away our customers. But the more I've looked into it, the more I realized that those people are not our customers. And I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but with COVID, one of the things that I realized is that we know that a massive portion of the population in the US underwent pretty severe income loss or job loss. But our industry as a whole, it was turbulent, but we continued to do fairly well and we grew as expected over that year, it wasn't easy and it continues to not be easy for people on the ground. But we as an industry have been inundated and we continue to be able to provide services and we continue to do quote unquote well financially, however you want to look at that. What that says to me as well is that 
the people who have lost their jobs or who are not earning money probably weren't seeking veterinary care to start with. I mean, we know many of them have pets, but we know they probably weren't involved in the veterinary economy prior to COVID. So to me, that's another opportunity. And others like David Hayworth have, have talked a lot about the opportunity that exists within populations that don't seek veterinary care at the moment. And I think that's super interesting in an area to me that I think is a is an obligation for us as an industry to help try and solve. And I know that super smart people are doing really cool things, but hopefully we hope to contribute towards some of those things as well. I'm going to try to give another saying and we'll see if you have something to, to pull out here. But I hear that as far as like thinking about standard of care, it's like, don't let great get in the way of good. If you can do something that's going to make a difference and an impact, it doesn't have to be the absolute top tier if they can't ever afford it. Is the enemy of perfect? Is that the... Uh... Yeah, yeah, that's the corrected version. That's perfect. See, I'm going to keep hitting these because I feel like I know like half sayings and I say them and then you're like, oh yeah, this is actually... It all works. It all works. Yeah. There was two different questions or areas I wanted to go into and I wasn't sure which one I wanted to follow that up with, but let's talk about your interest because I do think it ties into pet ownership and social economical challenges, but also thinking about like diversity and inclusion within veterinary medicine. And it's obviously been well-documented and I've had conversations with different people. And again, it's easy to have conversations and it's more important. And this is always where I stand. It's like, well, what are you going to do about it? Right? Like, what are you doing actively? So you mentioned, it's kind of like the metaphor of the chicken or the egg, right? In veterinary medicine, like, how do we work through this? Like, do you go and try to attract people to come in and take a while? Or do you try to just make adjustments and go out and serve a different population? So what thoughts, things that you think about in that space, just in general, that you would be willing to share and just chat through? I mean, being associated with organizations like MCVMA, Multicultural VMA, and Pride Veterinary Medical Community, I'm a big believer in the diversity bonus. I think that we do better when we have a more diverse mindset and approach. And in veterinary medicine, again, going back to those underserved populations, there's work that looks at equating veterinary medical care or the availability of veterinary medical care to food deserts. And so the availability of fresh foods, and we know that the communities that that exist in, and there's very similar overlap with access to veterinary care. So there's a bunch of issues to unwrap there. So first of all, the segments of the population know that veterinary medicine is a possibility. And coming again from the UK, where I frankly would not be a veterinarian if I'd grown up in the US, given the same family circumstances. Yeah, I think the debt that we ask the average student to take on is incredible, absolutely incredible. It's, it, and it's approaching an average of what, $200,000 now. And when you look at human medicine, that may feel equitable, but the reality is that our income to debt ratio is massively higher than almost any other medical professional, right? So that's one thing. Secondly, who is able to see a veterinarian as a role model and to see it as a possibility? We've already seen that to a degree with the shift away from a male-dominated profession, which we saw through the 70s and 80s, right? I think that as we started to see, presumably, young women and girls seeing that this was a profession that they could be reflected in, that that was something that drew them and attracted them, which, again, I think has been hugely beneficial in many ways. In the same way with Black or Indigenous people of color, are they seeing enough veterinarians, not just in their local practice, and are they seeing people in their practice because they have a practice near them? Are they able to seek veterinary care? Is the veterinary care available? Is it affordable? And are they seeing people that look sound or are culturally relevant to them in that profession? Do they see it as an opportunity 
from the schooling point of view. So as I said before, I applied to vet school without any experience working in a vet clinic or working with domestic animals. And I was lucky enough that Liverpool, I think, were interested in well-rounded individuals. And they also had a program where I could go for a year and take a further education course at an agricultural college and worked with cattle and sheep and swine and horses and actually learned so much and had a great time. But do those opportunities exist for, and again, going back, I worked from the time I left home when I was 16 and worked the whole time I was in sixth form college, which is 16 to 18. And so if I'd had to work at a farm or a vet practice, that wouldn't have been feasible for me. And I think if you look further down the socioeconomic ladder, you find some of the situations in that either parents are working and can't ferry kids around, or the kids have jobs that they're doing, or they're looking after siblings or whatever else. And so I think when you look at our admissions process, are we taking in students who are going to make good vets or are we taking in students who have the relevant experience that fit our criteria and i think there's some really good questions being asked around that and i know that many colleges like the ohio state university the ohio state university have been working (laughs) to say that otherwise uh, dean moore will yell at me but they have some awesome programs around making sure that they're getting a diverse slate of students including those who are from a family who don't have any college graduates prior they from a background that doesn't necessarily have a veterinary background. So I think these are some of the questions that need to be asked as well. I think some of the really big hairy questions are around the cost of education. Dr. Jason Johnson, who's now IDEX, formerly a dean at, I always want to say Liberty Mutual, Lincoln Memorial University. I think he had some great points around what are we doing with education? The preclinical years of education, why are we doing them the way we're doing them? Is there a way we can increase accessibility, cut costs, and change the way that we're doing the clinical years as well. I think there's some really good questions to be asked, and I think there's no easy answers. I think organizations like AAVMC and AVMA are fielding these things, but we know that change takes time, and I think the pressure to change has to come from as many directions as possible, and I think that gets us closer to where we need to be. And then, of course, once you're in practice or in school or in practice, making sure that there's an awareness of the differences and that's making a welcome place for Black or Indigenous people of color or people who are different in any way, shape or form, whether that's sexual orientation, whether that's race, religion. I think ensuring that we have an open and accepting profession and that we take the time. I think that's one of the things I took out of this last summer is allyship, is learning what it means to be a good ally and to, instead of asking questions of our, you know, in this case, BIPOC colleagues or friends, trying to get those answers yourself and then saying, hey, can we have a conversation about this? Because I know these things. Can I get your take on it? We as an industry have a a responsibility to do more to prepare our workplaces to be better places to work for people who are frankly non-white people is most of what we see. You talked about if you were in the States that you wouldn't have became a veterinarian. I think that's interesting. Who was a role model or how did that get shaped into your mind to then come into the profession? Is there anyone in particular that helped push you? I think I was never someone who had a, I meet so many colleagues and they're like, I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was the age of five. And I didn't really have that many interactions with veterinarians, frankly. I mean, we had pets in the family and they were well looked after and all the rest of it. But my dad was a plumber and my mother was a nurse and we didn't really have, I have an uncle, I think, who is in biomedical research, but it wasn't a close family. So again, never had this connection. It was more when I worked in Egypt for a little over nine months and worked with the indigenous people there, with the Bedouin. And it was putting together the scientific information I had about, because I was always chemistry, biology, physics, et cetera, like I love those subjects, but it was putting together those interests with what is the reality of how this helps people and how it affects people and how these 
non-human animals are also affected. And so to me, it was really just the synthesis of those things without necessarily having someone saying, this is the way, if we're going to go all Mandalorian on it. I did find that when I got to vet school, again, it was, you could tell that it was a non-traditional route. So many of my classmates either had veterinarians in the family or doctors in the family, and there was definitely a class divide in many cases. But I found such, I think, fertile grounds to do things differently. And one of my mentors is Professor Malcolm Bennett, who is now, I think, at the University of Nottingham. And with him in the UK, we have the five-year degree. But in the middle of that, I intercalated. I did a separate bachelor's degree in veterinary conservation medicine, which, again, areas that have always interested me around data with metapopulation studies and genetics and captive breeding and the awesome, like, fascinating topics. And Professor Bennett was one of the first ones to say to me, because I think we all have, to some degree, the romance of the veterinary profession that we're saving animals, that we're doing these great things, which is still absolutely true. But he was the first one to open my eyes to the influence that we can have in a different way. When we were talking about conservation medicine, he said that you can be the guy in the helicopter, like darting the rhino for this cool conservation project. Or with your training and your degree, you can be in the boardroom affecting how we make decisions around habitat management, which down the road is going to save many more rhinos, but feels maybe less sexy and cool. And I think that was the first opening of my eyes to all the things that we can do with our degree the way that we're taught to think, the problem-solving capacity the veterinarians have. And whenever I talk to students or I talk to people who are interested in looking outside of practice, there's so much that we already know how to do. I think it's just applying those skill sets to new things. I think it's just such a massively, massively powerful degree that's uh, super lucky and pleased to have, I guess. Yeah. As someone that's so passionate about kind of data and technology, what's one thing, and I'm sure there's more than one, that's frustrating when it comes to veterinary medicine in regards to those two different areas? I think, I was thinking about this a little earlier today, and I think generally speaking, and I think this happens anywhere where data strategy is not intentional. Data tends to be seen as an output of things that we already do. So in the context of practice management systems, we can get data out of our PIM system and say, based on these data, then we can look at our average client transaction. So PIM systems in the way that we, you know, and, and again, we have to make invoices, we have to do this, we have to do inventory management. And so as a result of those things, we create data. I think what I'm interested in is how do we be more proactive about how we approach data? People tend to talk about informatics a lot, right? So informatics is the codified and systematic categorization of treatments and diagnostics and drugs and things so that we can say that if you're treating a case of pancreatitis in one clinic, the same codified information will show that someone is treating pancreatitis in another clinic. Now, right now, the only way to know that two people in two different PIM systems are treating pancreatitis is if they're doing CPLI tests or if they say pancreatitis somewhere in the type medical records, you have to dig in the data and find those things. And there's a few different values to that, of course, right? I mean, apart from anything else, if we're being intentional about how we collect and use data, if we know that we have pancreatitis somewhere in the record, then we can set up communications, we can set up alerts, we can know that if we're prescribing a high fat diet for something, hey, by the way, did you know this bad pancreatitis before? Like, those are some of the very ground level things. But then as we look at things further, and you look at things like the Golden Retriever uh, Lifetime Study, the girls study that Morris Animal Foundation did. Now they're having to be very intentional about how they gather data about these dogs, because that's the whole purpose of the study. But imagine if we had standardized data across our industry, we could do the bill study on every single pet that had ever been seen, right? So I think this is the scope of things that excite data nerds like me. 
but we do have to be intentional about how we look at and how we aggregate data. I think there are some companies when I see some of the newer, more open, frankly, PIM systems like uh, Vetspire, for example, I think they're starting to be more progressive in how they look at data. I think there's more pressure for us to say, okay, well, then every veterinarian has to code pancreatitis. But I think they're being more intentional about how do we take the front end processes of veterinarians diagnosing, prescribing things and make an output that is a standardized piece of data. So again, it comes into the design, it comes into the decisions we're making on an everyday basis about how we're interacting with data. And then ultimately, we have to have serious conversations about who is using those data, how and why, and what is the best use for them. And we had a situation over a decade ago now, there's a system in the UK called VetXML, which allows the standardization of data objects between different systems. So in the example of pet health insurance, it allows a practice management system to send some data to a central resource, this XML, and then for that data to be forwarded to somebody else. And both sets of data are standardized, the inputs and outputs are standardized, so nobody has to write very intricate mapping systems between two systems. It's all standardized within this one central hub. So that was an open source platform at that time, and that was kind of brought over to the US, and there was a meeting of many of the stakeholders about 10 or 12 years ago, NABC, I think it was. And ultimately, everyone said, we don't see where the interest is in us to do this. And I think we have to get better as an industry to say, we need to share and we need to be more open. And again, everyone who's worked with a data aggregator or other know the issues we've had in getting data out of our backend systems, or especially if it's on a server or it's in the cloud. We have to start realizing that our data is not just a commodity, but also potentially a resource, and that we should engage with people who have a far-looking view of data and that we have the ability to use it as we want to use it going down the road. So I guess my view is always, if you don't know the questions to ask about data, talk to somebody who does. And we know a couple of those people, uh, something through Vet Partners, right? But I think it just behooves us. And, and one of the things that I love, and I don't know if everybody has read it, in fact, I know they haven't because we surveyed this at Vet Partners as well, but there's an AVMA, AAVMC Veterinary Futures Commission document, The Future of Veterinary Medicine, which I think is fantastic, which basically shows, you know, it's a bunch of smart people. Jason Johnson was part of it, Ken Rotondo, Adam Little, and Eleanor Green, some really forward thinking and smart people. And they basically said, what are the ways in which veterinary medicine is going to have to change in the next 10 years? And what are the niche kind of areas of knowledge that we're going to have to develop? And certainly data and technology were one of those. So I think this is something I talk to students about as well. Like, it's not something you necessarily understand, but the more you know about how data are used, I think the better your chances, again, of not just being a good veterinarian or practice owner, but also potentially being something else and serving the industry in different ways. Absolutely. So I started changing the way I close episodes with just asking the guest if they had a question that they could ask me anything. And it's been interesting to just get random questions and see where it goes. So anything from your end, questions that you would like to ask? I think it's always hard for me to, having been lucky enough to have worked with and talked to so many people within veterinary medicine at events like the Veterinary Innovation Summit or other focus events where you have the people who are really on the cutting edge of changing veterinary medicine. I always think it's interesting to ask people who are outside of veterinary medicine what their experience, or who've come from outside veterinary medicine, should I say, what their experience is of the profession and kind of how they see what changes they've seen since they've been looking at it. So that would be my question to you. 
So I think coming from outside and not having, similar to you, not having any connections to veterinary medicine, unlike some of the other advisors in the Veterinary Financial Advisor Network, which we created, I'm not married to a veterinarian. My wife's a teacher, so I don't have that like connection where I saw her go through vet school and the challenges and that was it. For me, it was more or less conversations. But what I have noticed is it's a tight-knit community, which is fantastic. That's fantastic once you're in. If you're not in and you don't know people, it's kind of like, well, how do you break in? So for me, it's just been going back to what you talked about earlier, being curious and trying to learn and ask questions and show up and say, hey, I really want to make a concerted effort to be known in this space and do X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. That to me is like a blessing and a curse. It's just kind of difficult. As far as what I've seen change, I think I was told initially when I wanted to focus and and work with veterinarians that A, they are all broke. They don't have any money. They're all in debt. They'll never want to talk about money. It's taboo. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think there's more, especially the younger veterinarians I talk to, have so many ideas of what they want to create and build. And it's not always the same model that has been historically in veterinary medicine. And you kind of talked about it, like the education and the training that you receive is immensely valuable, whether you stay in veterinary medicine or go completely into a different realm. You can do so much stuff with the critical thinking. And veterinarians, I always tell them like, hey, you can do what I do because you are very intelligent. It's more or less like, what do you enjoy doing and what you want to focus on? Like, it's not a matter of not understanding. It's a matter of you don't have the time. And that's always what I go back to is the skill set is there to do things. And I just think a lot of times veterinary medicine and the veterinarians themselves, they undervalue their skill set. And I've said that so many times, but I believe that undervalue their skill set. I know it's hard and people probably are shouting. I've just got yelled at that. I'm trying to do something and people are telling me that I'm greedy and trying to charge too much for stuff, but I still do believe that. So that's the way that I would answer. That's a great question. Cool. Thanks, man. This has been good. It's always nice to talk. And you and I have only you know, started talking recently, but we'll definitely be grabbing a couple of drinks at the next uh, partners conference. Absolutely. For those that maybe don't know you or want to check out different things and learn a little bit more about what you shared, where would you direct them if they're looking for information? I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. I think it's a good platform to, it's not social media, so it's not like so much of the drama and nonsense, but I think you can share really cool information and the people like Matt Saloy, like there's so many really interesting and cool people on there. If you can filter out the sales calls, I think it's a cool resource. I'll post like stuff about weird nerdy science that I'm into or data or the students. So yeah, that's usually my go-to. Perfect. And I will add that to the show notes and certainly send people there and they'll be able to see the study once you share it as well. So definitely follow along on uh, LinkedIn. And they should definitely go to pensurance.com, obviously, because that's the central resource for all your pet insurance needs. There you go. (laughs) Get the plug in before we go. Thank you so much for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your take on kind of where the world is right now in veterinary medicine. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, 
please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.